Welcome to When One Thing Leads to Another, a podcast that takes you freewheeling down the great internet rabbit hole of trivia. Each week, we pick a starting point, and then who knows where all the twists, turns and tangents will take us. But we'll be sure to discover a treasure trove of frivolous facts that will be as fascinating as they are useless. When One Thing Leads to Another is produced and presented by us, Helen and Bill Rich. Our theme music is by Justin Mitchell. This is episode 13. Bungalow Town. As you know, last weekend we were visiting our friends Steve and Dulcie in Shoreham Beach near Brighton. We had a great time. We did have a great time and I learned about Bungalow Town and how Shoreham was once almost the L.A. of Great Britain. Oh, yes. Yeah, Shoreham Beach, it's the shingle strip of land or spit that sits between the River Ada and the sea, directly south of Shoreham by sea, which itself sits between Worthing and Brighton on the south coast of England. That's very geographically specific, which I'm enjoying. <laughs> Thank you. I thought I'd I don't um, suppose... adopt a bit of accuracy. I don't suppose you've got the coordinates with you, have you? Oh, not on me. Sorry. No, I'm all out. So, yeah, there are some rather fancy houses, aren't there, dotted all along the front there. There are. There's some right nice pads. Yeah. And that strip was once home to Bungalow Town. Right. Which began in the 1870s on the then largely deserted spit when a fisherman decided to make a home for himself out of disused railway carriages. Right. And others started copying him, including music hall stars Marie Loftus and Will Evans. And soon showbiz types were flocking there and these desirable ex-railway residences were spreading along the spit. Okay. So Will Evans who, with a stage designer called Francis Lindhurst, formed the Sunny South Film Company to make short comedy films at a 19th century fort at the eastern end of the beach. Okay. And another film company arrived due to Shoreham's wonderful light and lack of fog, and they churned out 17 films. And it was looking promising that Shoreham might be the UK's very own Hollywood, but unfortunately lots of setbacks put paid to that. Financial issues, stiff competition, of course, from the US, and a fire in one of the studios didn't help. So sadly, it was not to be. But that stage designer who essentially started it all yeah. with, with performer Will Evans, remember him? Yeah. Francis Lindhurst. He is none other than Nicholas Lindhurst's granddad. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I had a little delve into Nicholas Lindhurst, as it were. Uh, Rodney Trotter, most famously. Of course. I think we all know already a lot about his roles, particularly on TV. Although I didn't know he played Fletcher's son in Going Straight. Did you? You know, I didn't the, know that, no. Yeah, the sequel to Porridge. He played Raymond Fletcher in four episodes in 1978. Oh, wow, that's proper early doors then. Y- it really is, yeah. But the most interesting thing for me was the fact that Nicholas Lindhurst turned down the lead role of Gary Gaz Schofield in The Full Monty which Robert Carlyle famously then took on. Oh, wow. So he was offered the role ahead of Carlyle, but politely declined it. Well, he says he got a call from his agent who said, Darling, availability check. British film, not much money, set in Sheffield, about male strippers. And (laughs) And he said, I'll pass, thanks. Right, now talking of 
The Full Monty. Yes. Uh, the film. Now, you will remember the famous scene where they're standing in the queue in the job centre. Oh, uh, yes. And they yeah. all start doing their moves. Yes. Looking for some hard stuff. Prince Charles famously reenacted it as well. Oh, did he? Yeah, which was odd. Where did he do that? Oh, I don't, I don't remember, but it was quite famous. There are videos of him, him doing it. it okay. was, he really, he said apparently he loved the film. He'd watched, he watched it twice. <laughs> oh, he watched it a whole two times. Yeah. That's how much old Prince Charles loved the film. Sli slightly odd, sort of seeing the future King of England thrusting. Anyway, yeah, carry that, on. That's something I don't feel like I really need to see. Mm. But anyway, yes, that scene nearly didn't make it into the film. Oh, wow. Um, because it was deemed too unrealistic and very nearly ended up on the cutting room floor. Oh, flipping heck. Well, that is the one of the most famous scenes. So thankfully that it got left in. Yeah, that's good. Whoever made that call got that one right. Um, and you will remember the final scene, the famous final scene, when yeah. they eventually perform yeah. to do The Full Monty. Oh, it's brilliant. I love it. And did you know, I was reading here, that that scene was done for real? Oh, really? Yeah, okay. To get oh, they, your... didn't have, they didn't have little um, fig leaves on or... No, um... no. That was, uh, no. According to the director, Peter Cataneo or Catanio, not sure how to pronounce mm. that, but anyway, for purposes of authenticity, they all agreed they'd do it as long as there was only one take. And so. Oh, no pressure on getting it right. Yeah, you've got one take at this. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that whole film relies on that crescendo. And I'm reading here that apparently there was a lot of alcohol uh, involved. The makeup department were plying the cast with booze uh, to give them the Dutch courage. Brilliant. Anyway, Cataneo, or Catanio, uh, the director, said that in the script, the final reveal was written as a full frontal naked star jump. <laughs> That's not obviously going to be able to happen. Exactly. He knew that he wouldn't be able to show uh, male genitalia. Mm. So he had to think of a, another way of doing it. And he said that he first thought about shooting it low from the crowd. Right. So if the crowd, if they had their hands going up with glee or whatever in the oh, air, yeah. that would then cover the junk. Oh, but if he di if they didn't know what was going to happen, he he didn't know they were going to be throwing their hands up. That would have been so exactly. difficult to do. Exactly. So as he said, it would be too hard to pull off spontaneously. Yeah. Which is an unfortunate euphemism, yeah. I've just realised. Um <laughs> Um, and then he realised what he could do, and this is what we see in the film, he shoots it from the back of the stage. Very clever. So we just see a row of bums, bums. which is acceptable yeah. in film, rather than uh, full frontal genitalia. Back bottom is better than front bottom. Exactamundo. And so the audience reaction you see is absolutely genuine. That is fantastic. Imagine being an extra and there you are and then suddenly, boom. Yeah. I would imagine that a lot of the audience would be shock. And horror awe and... and horror, yeah, quite. <laughs> and continuing on with the full Monty, mm. there's some absolute gold facts uh, related to it. Mm. Um, the budget for the film was three million quid, which oh, is actually... That's not much. That's not a whole bunch, no. um, given how much money can be spent on films and it very nearly didn't get made as nobody wanted it no distributor wanted it or company wanted it because brassed off had already just been made oh yeah which of course is in a very similar vein yeah but from a budget of three million quid they made a staggering 258 million us dollars wow which i'm pretty sure is a lot more than brassed off ever made yeah that's a pretty nice tasty little return isn't it um and of course it won a bafta for best film in 1997 yeah, yeah. and it 
also won an Academy Award for Best Score. Oh. Now, do you know who did the score? Oh, no, I've got no idea. If I were to say Anne Dudley, would that help at all? No. OK. Anne Dudley is a long-time collaborator with Trevor Horn. Oh. Who is oh. a very famous British producer and made significant contributions to ABC's The Lexicon of Love. Oh. Which is an absolute classic album. Um, and she was also the founding member of, or one of the founding members of The Art of Noise. Oh, that's yeah. brilliant. What a great fact. And yeah. Dudley, who did the soundtrack for The Full Monty, was essentially the art of noise. Yeah. Brilliant. What a great, what an amazing career. Yeah. And the art of noise also produced the theme tune to The Krypton Factor. Nice. Well, The Krypton Factor, I've been doing a little bit of digging. Yeah. And uh, with good old Gordon Burns. Who could forget Gordon Burns? You're going to love this. Did you know he's Northern Irish? No, I didn't. He's, he's certainly lost the accent, hasn't he? Yeah, still alive and living in Belfast at the grand old age of 80. Oh, wow. Yeah, his family moved to Kent for a time when he was a child before moving back to Ireland, which is probably why he doesn't have a strong accent. Right. And here comes some gold. Go on. Gordon Burns yeah. is second cousin to someone. <laughs> oh, I love the old second cousin Who stories. Who is it? I'll go to my default um, guess, Sinead O'Connor. It's Ed Sheeran. Ed Sheeran. <laughs> He's Gordon Burns from The Krypton Factor yeah. is Ed Sheeran's second cousin. Yep. Brilliant. Isn't it? Do you remember the rounds on The Krypton Factor? We used to love The Krypton Factor. Oh, mate. Our... Didn't everybody watch The Krypton yeah, Factor? Yeah, was it Monday night it was on, if I um, remember correctly? I think that's right. Every And I used to obviously love the assault course. That was uh, That's what yes. I tuned in for. Yeah, there were lots of rounds. The intelligence, response, yeah. the physical, of course, and the observation rounds. That's which right. I used to love the observation yeah, rounds. Yeah, I really enjoyed those. In the 1989 and 1990 series, yeah. you had to spot six deliberate continuity errors That's right. contained in one single clip. And in some of his earliest TV appearances, right. Steve Coogan starred in many of those sequences. Oh, that is fantastic. And this week, we welcome a new member to the Krypton Factor team, young comedy actor... Steve Coogan. Steve Coogan of all people. <laughs> Known for a variety of brilliant characters, of course, but most notable for Alan Partridge. Aha! Uh -huh. Alan Gordon Partridge, actually. Okay. Did you know his middle name's Gordon? That fits perfectly. It does. And he's become, of course, a British national treasure. Absolutely. And is, and is largely considered one of the greatest comic creations of the last few decades. I wouldn't disagree with that. In yeah. fact, he was voted seventh in the 100 greatest <laughs> TV characters in 2001. Okay. One of those Channel 4, you know, 100 greatest yeah, yeah, um, yeah. series. Do you know who was number one? It's going to be either Basil Fawlty or... Uh, I bet it's Basil Fawlty. Oh, no, it'll be Del Boy. No. Um, Basil Fawlty, I think, was two. Okay. Del Boy was definitely there. Okay. But he wasn't number one. It was Homer Simpson. Oh, okay. Yeah. Do you remember the series of Alan Partridge where he's staying at the Linton Travel Tavern? I mean, that was the yeah. best series for me. It was yeah. absolute gold. Yeah. Well, do you remember Michael the Geordie? Apparently they're opening a Starbucks on Beachy Head. Mm, nice, you know, uh, have a cup of coffee, admire the view, put a bit spring in your step. Yeah, well, a spring in your step's the last thing you need up on a clifftop. That actor, Simon Greenall, yeah. um, he is responsible for bringing those 
compare the market adverts to life because he voices Alexander the Meerkat <laughs> and all those characters. Compare the meerkat.com, compare the market.com. Simples. Yeah. That's him off of Alan Partridge. <laughs> yeah, he went to drama school with Steve Coogan and that's how they oh. ended up working on I'm Alan Partridge together. Apparently. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, isn't that great? Oh, that's gold. And this next little gem for me is one of the greatest ones I've discovered so far in when one thing leads to another. Well, you're building up, so I hope it delivers. Did you know that Steve Coogan's older brother was the lead singer in the 90s band The Mock Turtles? <laughs> Can you dig, dig it, it up? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. No, I did not know that. Yeah. That's not common knowledge, is it? That's I, absolutely amazing. I know. I loved that tune. I did as well. They were sort of a one-hit wonder. Mad, yeah. They sort of jumped on the yeah. Manchester baggy scene bit, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, it reached number 18 in the UK singles chart in 1991. Brilliant. Well, I'd almost forgotten all about the Mock Turtles. Uh, So I thought I would do a little digging around. And um, the band, the Mock Turtles, were named after the character from Lewis Carroll's 1865 book, the famous one, Alice in Wonderland, who itself is named after a dish that became popular in Victorian times, which was Mock mock Turtle Soup. Yeah, okay. Mock turtle soup is an English soup that was created in the mid-18th century as an imitation of green turtle soup. Right. And it often used brains and organ meats, yeah, such as calves' heads, to duplicate the texture and the flavour of the original turtle meat. It used to be actual green turtles. Oh. Because the the actual green turtles were almost became extinct because they were being eaten so, so much. Right. And in the United States, mock turtle soup eventually became more popular than the original dish. Right. And, rather interestingly, is still popular in... Cincinnati. Oh, how bizarre. Which is pretty random, isn't it? And the soup is also a traditional dish in the lower Saxony areas of Germany. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, where it is considered a speciality of English cuisine. Oh, isn't that funny? Because I don't really, I mean, is it? I've, I've never seen it on a menu. That's no, all I'm saying. No, and I think there's a pretty good reason why that is the case, right? Yeah, sounds horrible. And a 19th century recipe collector, Martha Lloyd, gives a recipe for Mrs. Fowl's mock turtle soup in her household book. And I'd like to uh, read her recipe, if I may. Mrs. Fowl. How very <laughs> apt. Yeah, Mrs. Fowl's mock turtle soup. Mm, go on then. Okay, here's what you need to do, everybody. Yeah, so yeah. take notes. I've got me pinny on. Yeah. Take a large calf's head. <laughs> I'm out. Right. What you need to do is you need to scold off the hair, oh. obviously, you, and then you need to boil it until the horn is tender oh. and then cut it into slices about the size of your finger. Right. And what you want to have is three pints of good mutton or veal broth ready right. and put in half a pint of Madeira wine, right. half a teaspoon of thyme, pepper, a large onion. Are you keeping up? And the peel of a lemon chopped very small. Right. Um, a quarter of a pint of oysters chopped very small oh. and their liquor, a little salt, the juice of two large onions, some sweet herbs and the brains chopped. Oh, that's gross. Isn't that lovely? Stand all these together for about an hour and then you serve it all up with the yolks of hard-boiled eggs. Mmm! Okay, going back to Alice in Wonderland, which is where the, the Mock Turtle character is from. Oh, yes, okay. Guess what chapter one of Alice in Wonderland is called? 
No, I have no idea. I'm not even going to guess. No. Although you could actually have a guess if you think about it. Listen, you're talking to someone who is so thinly read. Not a chance. Okay. Um, well, the first chapter is called Down the Rabbit Hole. Ah! Isn't that brilliant? <laughs> that idiom was introduced by Lewis Carroll, which is, you know, that is what we do. That is what we do. And there are pages and pages on the internet of top ten rabbit holes you can go down. Okay. Based on murders, abductions, haunted houses, celebrity dogs, and even 3D visualisations of what a wiki rabbit hole might look like. Oh, okay. Yeah, isn't that great? And there was a really funny article in The Onion last year about Jimmy Wales, who's one of the founders of Wikipedia. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. It reads, Jimmy Wales reportedly glanced up Thursday to realise he'd gotten sucked into a Wikipedia rabbit hole for the past 20 years. <laughs> oh, yikes. I remember back in 2001, I was just going to spend a little time founding this new online encyclopedia, <laughs> but then that led to something else, and that led to something else. And before I knew it, it's 2021, and I've just been milling around the same website, telling reporters that he had so thoroughly lost himself doing research and fixing errors that he had neglected any other obligations. Wales added that at this point it was time for him to move on to some of his other interests as soon as he looked up one more thing. Good old Jimmy Wales. Thank you for listening to When One Thing Leads to Another, a podcast produced and presented by us, Helen and Bill Rich. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please rate and review us on wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe, and that way you'll never miss an episode. A massive thank you to Justin Mitchell for letting us use his music as our theme song. It's a track called Homo Erectus, taken from his fantastical album called The Garden of Earthly Delights, which is available to buy from bandcamp.com. Thanks also to Acast for hosting us. Join us next week for another episode of When One Thing Leads to Another. Please note that all facts have been found on the internet and therefore we cannot vouch for their veracity. Mm -hmm.